Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. It's Monday, August 9th, 2021. We begin yet another week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. You know, as I was preparing uh, the show by, by reading materials uh, yesterday and early this morning, um, I couldn't help but think about Yogi Berra. Deja vu all over again. We really kind of thought at a certain point in the last few months that we were done talking too much about the coronavirus, the pandemic, the COVID-19 was uh, going to fade out as a headline story as people got vaccinated. Um, and of course, that's not what happened. what's happened. It, it's become the headline story once again. And for me, one of the things that really jarred me into an understanding of just how uh, we have got this sense of deja vu is reading a quote from Scott Steiner. Last spring, uh, he's the head of Phoebe Putney Hospital in Albany, and last spring uh, he was a, a, free, a panelist on the show on a number of occasions because Phoebe Putney down there in the Albany area, they were ground zero for COVID, not just in the state of Georgia, but nationally. Um, and they're right back where they were. Here's a quote from Scott Steiner. The virus we are dealing with now is more contagious and is spreading much faster than anything we've previously seen in this epidemic. A month ago, we had eight COVID patients in our hospitals. Today, we're caring for 97. That's a staggering 1,126% increase in just over four weeks, Steiner said. And he goes on, our current challenges are exacerbated by a lack of available contract staff to support the Phoebe family. Every hospital in our region is stretched to the limit. On a daily, even hourly basis, we are evaluating and reallocating staffing resources to ensure we provide the best and most appropriate level of care to each patient. And then he goes on and asks for prayers um, from people in the community. Um, so we are going to, once again today, spend a good amount of time talking about COVID, um, the public health threat, the political challenges. It's an ethical and moral issue. It's a legal issue. And we're going to talk about all of that. And we have other news to get to on the show today as well, of course. Um, I want to welcome the panel. Tia Mitchell, the Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us today. Uh, wearing her FAMU sweatshirt. How are you, Tia? Good morning, everyone. I'm doing great. Go FAMU. <laughs> well, we're very happy to have you here, so thanks a lot. Um, Karen Owen is uh, with us today as well. She, of course, is a professor of political science at the University of West Georgia. Um, and let me introduce also Amy Steigerwald, professor of political science at um, uh, Georgia State University. And, and I want to do you both together because you both are part of the university system of Georgia. Classes are approaching, and we're going to certainly talk about COVID and the schools. Um, Karen and then Amy, give us a little report on what you're anticipating 
given that the state is um, uh, the university system determines what you can and cannot do to mitigate the virus. Uh, Karen, you go first and then Amy jump in. Yeah, so Amy and I are both a part of the University System of Georgia about where we're teaching. And so you're right, the University System and the Board of Regents will make decisions that will affect each of us. And I think we start classes Wednesday. We have a lot of students who are going to be coming back into face-to-face classes. I'm a professor teaching face-to-face. The University System wants us to continue to offer those classes face-to-face and not try to switch to remote learning or an online learning right now. Um, so that the students can feel some ability to be back normally in the classroom. I think they are, we at the University of West Georgia, we've gotten emails from the president and provost really strongly encouraging us to make sure we are vaccinated, faculty, staff, and students, as well as that we, uh, if we're inside and especially close proximity in the classroom, it's really recommended that we are wearing masks. Of course, it's not required. But they really do want us to uh, stay safe and think about these guidelines that are being pushed out right now by public health. Amy, how about Georgia State? Um, We're in the exact same situation that Karen uh, was talking about at University of West Georgia. So all of the schools actually in the University System of Georgia are under the auspices of the Board of Regents. And they're the ones who are setting the policies of what we're allowed and not allowed to do on campus. And so the official guidance at the moment is... Um, The USD actually changed their wording um, actually late Friday, uh, a week ago, Friday night, and said that now they encourage everyone to wear masks on campus, regardless of vaccination status and indoors and outdoors. And So that was a change. Originally, it was uh, that they encouraged it for those who were unvaccinated and that that you didn't have to if you were vaccinated. And so there was a little bit of a shift there, but it still is that we're encouraging mask wearing, we're encouraging vaccines, but they are not required. And so that is where some of the concern comes in because the other part of the guidance, um, which is understandable given that policy, is that we are not allowed to differentiate um, or treat anyone different due to their failure uh, or their decision not to wear a mask, to not be vaccinated, anything like that. And so, um, you know, if you're teaching a class, and we we certainly have this, I'm, I'm sort of more aware of it, I think, as being associate chair right now. Um, if you're teaching a class of 200 students and 199 of them do not want to wear a mask, that is how class will proceed. Um, there is not any more social distancing in the classrooms. Um, those measures are gone. And so there is definitely concern, especially because we know the vaccination rates are particularly low between 18 and 25 year olds. Um, Tia, this, uh, I I guess it's fair enough to call it a laissez-faire attitude about how to protect against the vaccine, whether it's in the schools, whether it's in public places, uh, state officials are not including the governor, particularly the governor, Uh, The governor says people should get vaccinated. He points out he's been vaccinated, but there's no urgency around uh, 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 this in in the state among our leadership. And and to that point, Tia, on Friday, on Friday, the Department of Public Health uh, reported 4,195 confirmed cases of COVID on that day, and that was confirmed. They also say, because they keep track of this as well, there were an additional 1,851 probable uh, cases. So you're now talking about 6,000 plus cases in one day. 
Um, we uh, have 3,327 people currently hospitalized uh, dealing with COVID-19. So uh, this is not going away. If anything, it's only going to get worse, and we're still waiting for some kind of leadership, I think, and continuity in terms of how we mitigate this. Tia? Yeah, it's, you know, we have to realize when you look at the numbers, we're looking at numbers back to the beginning of the pandemic. Um, And unfortunately, COVID has been politicized from the very beginning, and that makes it hard to come up with policy because our politicians, particularly, you know, conservative-led states like Georgia, um, the politicians are playing more into the politics than they are playing into the public health aspects of this. And you can't ignore that it's both. You know, um, unfortunately, it just seems like the public health aspect is not being prioritized in states like Georgia. You know, I've said all the time, I live up here in the D.C. area. There are mass mandates back in place for all public facilities in the D.C. area. The law says you're supposed to wear a mask. Um, and that is was reinstated over the last week or two. Um, that's what's different in a in an area like here that that doesn't have those conservative leaders that are um, less inclined to go with the policy. I will say the the concern. I'll stop here, but the concern is that coronavirus will will really run rampant in the next couple of months, and the states that are not really being proactive to get vaccinations. And and we've seen it takes more than just say, go get the vaccine. Again, we're talking about policy. We're talking about action, not just words. Um, you know, uh, Tia, you talk about this as uh, certainly becoming politicized. It has been from the very beginning, unfortunately. Um, and an example of it, I think it's safe to say, uh, uh, Karen, is uh, Brandon Beach, senator from Alpharetta, announced that he is going to introduce legislation in the next session of the General Assembly. And by the way, we could probably ask Amy, uh, who's you know got some expertise in federal uh, law, whether this would be even legal. But Brandon Beach wants to introduce a bill that would forbid uh, private businesses and public institutions from requiring vaccines for their uh, uh, people, Karen. Talk about politicizing a situation. Yes, and I think Tia mentioned right away, it's been that way since the very beginning, and it's continuing. It's not lessening as case numbers are going up, or even, you know, vaccination rates have gone up in certain states, or they're even ticking up a little bit after we've seen this latest wave in the last four weeks, not increasing greatly, but they are moving, and it is becoming political. And Amy can definitely speak to the legal part. But on the political part, I think Brandon Beach, who's state senator up in Alpharetta, Milton, North Fulton, and we saw parents this weekend who were protesting at Milton High School mask wearing in the schools. So I think he is paying attention to the, the community around him and what they are saying. He's also the former leader at the North Fulton Chamber of Commerce. So he's probably talking to business leaders who probably have concerns whether employees will come back. So he's playing constituent probably relations 
but also statewide trying to make some effort. This is a man who probably has other political ambition, as many politicians do, I think. And so I think it's part of what he's talking about. I will say that um, just thinking about the politicization of COVID, we live in a time when, as humans, we desire information all the time, and we get it with 24-7 media and our social media and other outlets. And with a virus such as this, where science changes, where developments change, I think that has provided some people get one information, some information on Monday, and by Thursday they get some different types of information, and they're concerned with what they can trust. So I think we have to hope that our leaders will continue when they speak to speak, yet this was the news we had Monday, but now science has changed by Thursday, and we really stress what the importance is at this date. And that next Thursday, it could be something different. And we're not lying to you. We're not scaring you. It's just we have to follow true science and what's happening. That is such a tremendously important point, and we've tried to make it on the show over and over again, because changes by CDC or Anthony Fauci or any other public health uh, leader uh, in how they uh, position what we need to do in terms of the virus have led to the the notion of a conspiracy uh, in which we can't trust, we can't believe our public health officials. And we've said repeatedly, and you've said it better than I have, uh, uh, this is an evolving science, and we're watching it unfold even as it happens. Uh, Amy, the only company that I'm aware of so far in Georgia that is going to mandate uh, vaccines for its employees is my old employer, Cox Enterprises, uh, owner of the Atlanta Constitution. They used to own uh, Channel 2 Action News, the ART's uh, employer. Um, And uh, they're going to require employees who enter their headquarters and some of the other offices in their complex to be fully vaccinated. uh, but in addition to Cox here in Georgia, Disney, Walmart, Google, Tyson Foods, Netflix, and Microsoft have now also told their employees that vaccination is a condition of employment. And um, so there are going to be questions when somebody like Brandon Beach comes along and says he's going to introduce legislation to forbid mandates for vaccines, whether there's any legal basis for him to be able to do that. So the basis that he would be able to do that would be from the perspective of the discrimin- discrimination, saying that it is illegal based upon vaccination status for you to treat one employee differently than another, right? And so it would sort of be done on, on that um, level, and we have a lot of um, – employment laws that look like that, right? Stipulating that we're not allowed to treat people differently based on various uh, things. And the ones that we sort of think about are things like sort of race and sex, but we also do it on on other um, areas as well, right? That we sort of stipulate in law. And so it would, it is, it is legally possible to do that. On the other side, it is also legal for uh, both the government as well as businesses to mandate vaccines, right? And under the current regime, uh, they are allowed to, and that actually goes back to um, a case all the way uh, back in the early 1900s that the Supreme Court decided they had to do with the smallpox vaccine, saying that there are some times where due to public health issues, uh, sort of the 
basically the good of the community outweighs sort of that individual. And so it was, in fact, totally fine to be able to mandate that everyone had to have the smallpox vaccine. And so technically both of them are, in fact, allowed. And so I think some of the question is going to be, to be perfectly blunt, is a timing question. Um, the legislative session will not start until the second Monday in January. Uh, that is when that legislation would be able to be taken up and put into place. And I have a feeling that if we're going to see um, businesses who are implementing these, uh, more businesses implementing these mandates, they're probably going to be doing so well before January. And a lot of the employees are going to be affected. So to be perfect, uh, one thing that's going to be really interesting is that two days ago, United Airlines, for example, required that all of their employees have to be vaccinated. And so it's an interesting question as to whether or not that will now push, for example, Delta, obviously American Airlines, the other major airlines um, to follow suit and whether or not we're now going to start to see this wave as the first ones have started to come in and more will follow. Uh, just as a follow-up, we talked about this case on Friday, actually. It was Jacobson versus Massachusetts. It was a 1905 case. And as you point out, Amy, the Supreme Court uh, upheld the state of Massachusetts' uh, decision to require compulsory smallpox vaccinations. Um, and they were challenged by a, a pastor who uh, said that it denied him his individual rights and his religious liberty. And the court said, nope, uh, individual rights must give way to the common good. And that case has been uh, uh, dis discussed in the few cases we've seen in other states where people have tried to challenge uh, uh, vaccine requirements. That, that case continues to uh, hold precedence. Um, Tia, you're still dealing with this on the Hill because um, I think I'm correct that Speaker Pelosi has said we're going to keep a, ma a mask mandate in place uh, for members uh, in, in the chamber, right? She put a mask mandate back in place. It was starting to be relaxed yeah. for those who were vaccinated, and they're back to requesting masks for everyone. Same in some of the press galleries. They've gone back to requesting masks for everyone. Um you know, it's just so interesting to me because when you take the politics out of it, you know, cars are made right now where some cars, if you don't put your seatbelt on, it is going to beep at you your entire time driving. And kids don't know what it's like to have chicken pox because the vaccine is so widely accepted. And we carry around a driver license and we expect to have our ID checked. And I'm not, again, I'm not here to make the policy. That's what the people in place are supposed to do. But I want people at home to really think about all the ways we literally have passports to get into new countries. And we literally have vaccination requirements and other requirements for ways we go about our life. And so wrestle with the fact that on coronavirus, which has been deadly, some of the opposition may not just be about should it be required or should it not, not just about the mechanics of requiring. There are other things at play. And I want our listeners, particularly those who may be, you know, more hesitant 
for vaccinations or more hesitant about vaccination requirements to wrestle with what that hesitancy comes from and who is feeding into that hesitancy and whether there are other places in your life that you can compare and contrast it to to really get to the core of what this is about, not only for you, but for those elected officials who are telling you these things. You know, Karen, it's uh, interesting to hear Tia mention seatbelts. Um, we don't introduce you enough with an additional title in addition to your work as a professor of political science as the director of the University of West Georgia's Thomas B. Murphy Center for Public Service. And I, I remember quite well when I covered the legislature, Thomas B. Murphy was the most strident opponent of requiring seatbelts in cars in Georgia. He held out for years and because he, did, he wasn't convinced they would make you safer. There was an odd personal side to that. His daughter had been in a pretty awful car wreck and had been thrown free because she was not wearing a seatbelt, and he took that as evidence that seatbelts might be more dangerous. So it's interesting to hear Tia use the seatbelt example and to think back to a time when there were political leaders who defied public safety with something as simple as seatbelts, which we now take for granted. Absolutely, and I think you touched on the fact like Speaker Murphy had a personal story, and many individuals that have their own personal reasons of why they're not getting vaccinated or for whatever, that comes into play. I mean, Tia mentioned it, and, and you mentioned it earlier, Bill, it's a common good. But for a lot of people, this is individual decision-making. And for whatever host of reasons, they, for their health, their work, um, not sure of concerns because it's been through emergency authorization, not FDA full approval. You know, whatever those hosts may be, they're holding on to it's my choice to decide. I think for the common good, yes, if you're not going to get vaccinated, though, think about how you can continue, though, to protect your own health and those around you so that the virus cannot keep spreading. I also think this is similar to the idea some people probably, especially I think about college kids, the young kids, the obstacles that they think are there in getting the shot. How do I find my appointment? Do I still have to have an appointment? Where do I go? Which is a lot to voting. How students 18 to 25 are not registered to vote. Why? Because they don't know how to get through the first hurdles of finding the information online to register and things. And I think this is where I always go back to leadership. What are the leaders messaging and how are they removing a lot of these um, obstacles or hurdles and telling people what they really need to do to continue to keep everyone safe or in voting to get out and vote? Um, we also, Amy, as we continue talking about the politics of COVID, uh, have legislators who want to uh, pass uh, state legislation that would prevent, um, and they're Republicans, would uh prevent any a municipality from passing its own mask mandate. And, and I said on the show the other day, that and, and Governor Kemp has not gone that far, but Governor Kemp has said he doesn't think the state should dictate how uh, individual school systems should make decisions, how individual uh, communities should make decisions. That should be up to each, uh, in, each community, each individual, each business. 
But there is an irony here that the same party, which uh, feels perfectly comfortable dictating uh, that schools cannot teach critical race theory, has uh, no problem uh, saying, well, on the other hand, we don't want to interfere with the schools when it comes to masks. Um, we see this in a lot of things. I mean, on, on the idea that policies will necessarily not conflict with each other or be viewed perhaps uh, as intention or even hypocritical is kind of a difficult one, right? So in the same way that we're saying that we want to give, make sure we exercise local control and we don't want to put in mandates there, right? That's the same sort of group that also um, was not okay to allow individual municipalities to decide whether or not they wanted to take down Confederate statutes, right? We sort of see this real tension going on of at what time are we allowing there to be kind of local control and when have we decided that we don't like the decisions that the localities are making and so therefore we're going to take that control back. And I think it also a lot goes, I mean, I both Karen and Tia made some really great points about sort of what has been the messaging, how has this been done, and also that sort of struggle when we don't know the answers here. And I think it's not only has the information been changing, but there's also the fact that, you know, speaking as a social scientist, we don't deal well in absolute. We don't ever say with 100% confidence that something is going to happen because the world doesn't work that way. Um, there's always going to be, right, the exception that proves the rule. And especially with the science changing so much, that makes it really very difficult. Um, but there have been some things that have been consistent all the way through. One of those is, in fact, the degree to which masks work really well. They screwed up the messaging at the very beginning. What they wanted to say was, please don't rush out and buy the surgical mask because they need them in the hospital. But other things can work. Instead, that got all jarbled, but that also got fixed pretty quickly. And so we've known since then to be able to wear the mask. And that is one where there is sort of this communitarian aspect of it that comes into it and which is really very difficult. And I'll admit on this one, it, it's a difficult one because I have a child who's unvaccinated because he can't be. Um, and so I think that that's some of it also where it becomes difficult of what, what do we do when we have a group that, you know, can't protect themselves. And so we need to aid them in trying to figure out the policy aspect. Okay. Um, I appreciate all that. And I'm very sorry about your son. Um, that must make you feel very vulnerable. And, and I hope everything goes really well in your family. Uh, with him. Um, we've got to take a break. When we come back, uh, we have a lot more to talk about on Political Rewind, including a story that we didn't get to the way we'd hoped to last week, but I want to take up right away. Uh, and it, it t- gives us new information about just how far uh, former President Trump was willing to go to try to get the Department of Justice involved in uh, claiming that Georgia's presidential election was fraudulent. We'll do that more after these messages. The AJC's Tia Mitchell, Georgia State University's Amy Steigerwald, and University of West Georgia's um, Karen Owen join us for today's Political Rewind. Uh, Tia, uh, over the weekend, Jeffrey Rosen, who became the acting attorney general after William Barr stepped down late in Trump's tenure, um, presumably because he was, Barr, was uh, really disturbed by uh, the 
by the, by the Trump uh, repeated efforts and pressure to declare that the presidential election had been fraudulent. Rosen stepped in and he testified this weekend before a Senate Judiciary Committee in a closed door session and apparently told senators a lot about just how about the lengths Trump had gone to to try to get DOJ involved in investigating fraudulent elections. And, Tia, just to add to that, um, we have learned, we learned even before that, based on reporting from ABC News last week, that in fact Georgia was one of the significant targets of the Trump effort to engage uh, DOJ in declaring or investigating uh, Georgia. And um, uh, he turned, Jeffrey Rosen said, no, I'm not going to do it. And so Trump turned to Jeffrey Clark, who was the head of the civil division of DOJ. They began having conversations, which we should point out is highly unusual for someone that far down the totem pole to be going over the head of his boss, Jeffrey Rosen, and Jeffrey Clark then talking to Trump about how to get DOJ looking at Georgia was truly astonishing. Tia? Yeah, it's, you know, I think the first thing we, to your point, is usually there is a firewall in the Justice Department, in the White House, really try to not have too much intersection because the Justice Department is, you know, that's the policing agency. Those are the folks that will investigate if they think something's wrong. So, you know, the Biden White House has gone back to the norms before the Trump administration of even putting out a policy memo that kind of shows that firewall and shows where their, their lines are not to be crossed. And that didn't exist during the Trump administration. The other thing is, again, even outside of Georgia, it shows us how very close we came to the Trump administration using the government to overturn an illegal election. And this is something that we criticize other countries are doing. We've seen other countries fall apart because they did not have a peaceful transition of power. And everyone should be aware that the United States really came one acting attorney general away from complete chaos. And this is before January 6th. This is this is still when, you know, it should have been the lame duck period, so to speak. And when it comes to Georgia, we see that um, Mr. Clark um, wanted to pressure Georgia's General Assembly, Republican-led General Assembly, to have a special session. And we know that there are members in Georgia who were going to back that. People like... Um, it's the guy that just recently said well, he wants to run for others, lieutenant governor. Yeah, Bert, 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 Bert Jones, who's just filed paperwork to run for lieutenant governor, was one of the uh, uh, members of the Georgia legislature who signed on to the Texas lawsuit that would have declared Georgia and several other states' elections illegal. So you're completely correct about that. Um, you know, Karen, so first of all, we know earlier reporting on this whole issue um, told us that uh, when Trump went to Rosen, Rosen said, according to notes that he kept, he said, understand that DOJ can't and won't snap its fingers and change the outcome of an election, Mr. President. It doesn't work that way. Trump was reported to have responded, don't expect you to do that. Just say that the election was corrupt. Leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. Okay. So then he turns to Jeffrey 
Clark. And Jeffrey Clark drafted a letter which ended up not getting the approval of DOJ to send out, but it's worth reading a couple sentences of it, Karen, and then Amy to get you in here. Here's what, how the letter started. The Department of Justice is investigating various irregularities in the 2020 election for President of the United States. Well, that was a stretch. In fact, there wasn't much of an investigation because DOJ had already determined by an early investigation that there was nothing really inappropriate. But then he goes on. While the Department of Justice believes the governor of Georgia should immediately call a special session to consider this urgent and important matter, if he declines to do so, we share with you our view. This is, he wants DOJ to say this, that the Georgia General Assembly has implied authority under the Constitution of the United States to call itself into special session for the limited purpose of considering issues pertaining to the appointment of presidential electors. That's breathtaking. It is astonishing that an attorney within DOJ is writing a letter such as this. I would say, too, that we knew going into the 2020 election, Trump had laid, President Trump had laid a ground that this election could be corrupt and there could be issues involved. And so I think, you know, I look at this, and, and Tia mentioned the fact that you had this firewall before, but it seemed to Trump, President Trump tried to be, you know, going into DOJ to get them to do more. And it shows me that within the White House, Members of the president's legal team and other advisors were not stressing to him that this is the actions of a president, and if the election does not go your well way, this is transitioning how we move out, and you cannot get interference from DOJ, and how that seems to have failed. And it may be for a host of reasons. I was not within the White House. I'm not privy to that, and I'm not privy to knowing Donald Trump and how he handles his team. But that, to me, seems more of a businessman who's going to all of his different agencies and thinks he controls everything instead of a person who understands the constitutional limits of what the president can do with his executive agencies. Amy? I think Karen's precisely right on that one. And what, therefore, right, somewhat is concerning is to see, right, especially right, a lawyer who is fairly high up in the DOJ, to try to therefore make arguments almost to sort of pacify, right? As opposed to saying like, no, this is not in fact how it works. I mean, what's most notable actually about the letter that uh, Mr. Clark drafted and wanted to send to the governor is that it came on December 28th. Now, the reason that that's important is that Georgia's electors were certified on December 14th. That was after the election, after there had been a recount after there had been the uh, sort of modified auditing process and hand recount, right, all of that. So we had gone through the count three times. The electors had been certified and certified, right, by the legislature and transmitted to Washington. And he was now coming in and saying, oh, no, we can totally find legal authority in the Constitution for there to be this special session to do what entirely, I guess, to for the the, I guess he wanted the legislature to come back in and say, wait, actually, no, we shouldn't certify any of this. And now we're going to rescind all of it, which we don't have any, right? We've never seen that happen before in history. And so some of that is also sort of concerning. But I think it also points to, which also goes on, is there's been a lot of discussion of, oh, what was attempted then on January 6th failed. 
all of these efforts failed. And what can be kind of concerning, and especially, right, our colleagues who, for example, study other countries keep pointing out is, well, but what if it doesn't? Right. It's trying to say, like, oh, we should feel relieved that it didn't fail doesn't get rid of the idea that people tried. And if perhaps they were simply. Right. A little more on top of it, if they were a little more organized, if they had a leader who understood maybe a little bit more of what was going on and what could happen, right, they could have. And so that's sort of where the concern is that on some level, it all came down to Jeffrey Rosen saying, no, right? Attorney, the, the acting attorney general saying like, no, we're not sending this letter. Have you lost your mind? But that's kind of a scary proposition that it's rely upon, right? Sort of these individual people to kind of stop it because we saw such a broad spaced effort. So uh, Tia, I thought one of the most chilling uh, things that I saw in this, in this series of stories that began unfolding really early last week in the conversation with Rosen, when Rosen says to Trump, uh, you know, we can't just snap our fingers. This requires more work than that. And it was Trump's response to that that I think gives us such a window into what he think, thought of himself as an authoritarian presence whose power of persuasion could move people to his will. So he says back, well, don't worry about that. Just say it's a fraud. The election's a fraud. And then he says, and leave the rest to me. There's something very chilling about that, Tia. Yeah, I think, it, again, we came close to <laughs> our American representative democracy, where we have free and fair elections, and we decide, we the people, everyone of age, every adult, gets to decide who represents us at the local, state, and national level, culminating with this weird electoral college process and deciding who our president is. We pride ourselves on that. We are the greatest nation, America's superpower, America first, all that stuff that conservatives even more so have championed. Yet they were willing to let one man almost get close to dismantling it and turning us into an authoritarian, almost a dictatorship. We came close. And unfortunately, the people who, until very recently, were say they are big patriots and all about America and, and what our founders envisioned in 1776, the man who was going to dismantle it was one of their own, and they haven't distanced themselves from him or criticized him for it. Many of these, many Republicans, I'm not saying all, but those staunchest Republicans tend to be the staunchest Trumpers. And that is what I find very interesting about all of this. Yeah, I do think it's important what, what, what you just said about not all Republicans, because we should say, uh, remember that Jeffrey Clark in his letter uh, was ready to bypass Governor Kemp because we know Governor Kemp refused to go along with Trump's uh, uh, claims about a fraudulent election. And so Clark had to say, we think the Constitution gives the General Assembly the power to call itself into session. I'm not sure whether that's correct legally or not, but that isn't the point. Um, Amy Staggerwald, who knows this stuff, is shaking her head, no, the legislature doesn't have that power. It's got to be a call of the governor. But the point to make is uh, Governor Kemp, uh, despite his 
wish that, that Donald Trump would support him uh, in his reelection bid, would be friendlier to him. Uh, that's not going to happen because Kemp was one of those Republicans who f- refused to go along with these notions of a fraudulent election. All right, let's get our final break of the show out of the way. When we come back, let's talk about 2022 and the elections that are brewing for uh, next year. This is Political Rewind. Floyd County Republicans had a big event up in Rome uh, over the weekend. Um, Many of the candidates, Republican candidates for major offices, uh, were up there. Greg Bluestein was up there. Here's Bluestein's lead. Look no further than the table greeting arrivals at one of the state's biggest GOP gatherings for evidence of the former president's enduring grip on the party. T-shirts and signs proclaiming Trump won were there for the taking. Throughout the Floyd County GOP event, uh, Trump's presence was a constant. Candidates promised to drain the swamp and promote his false claims of widespread election fraud. Others promised to make him proud in state or federal office. And you know who else was there? Karen Owen, political science professor and observer only, was at the event. Karen? Yes, I was at the event, and it was quite fascinating um, just to see the, you know, activity in Floyd and in Rome. I mean, they had probably over 450 people in attendance, and it was clear, you know, it was a barbecue outside rally. All the candidates were coming in, but it was clearly a discussion of where the Republican Party and the state is. And, um, you know, I think people, your listeners would know that in my previous, before my academic world, I had worked for um, a Republican congressman, Nathan Deal. And while I was at this rally, it was not what I'd have seen in GOP rallies 15 years ago. So it's definitely a party change because of the Trump influence. And, you know, people asking questions of each other as they mold around, you know, do you believe we need a full audit still of the election? Um, I still think, you know, you would hear people say, I think Trump won, like you mentioned, the um, shirts, but also just the continuation of do we really trust our system? Who can we put in that will really kind of break up the system? And what does that mean? I don't know if it's a far stretch of like a coup. I don't know that. But it's just like, what do we believe and trust in our system right now? It was a a unique time to be there Saturday and, and see our, our fellow citizens and what they're saying. Uh, Tia Bluestein's stories uh, indicates that Marjorie Taylor Greene was the biggest attraction. Um, talk to us about her. You see her at work every day in Washington or many days in Washington. Um, has she become a real leader of the far right uh, members of the House? I would say that answer is no, but she's in the inner circle. So you have to remember in the House, there are what, about 200, a little over 200 Republican members of the House. And I would say two, half to two-thirds of those Republicans consider themselves conservatives, consider themselves, I would say two-thirds consider themselves Trump Republicans, maybe even more. And then there's that ultra-conservative group of maybe 20 that are just far out there, your Marjorie Greens, your Paul Gosars, your, you know, um, those folks. 
And so she's in that group, but there are others who are, you know, your Andrew Clydes and, and there are many of them. I guess that's my point. She's one of many and we can't ignore that. And that's something I think, you know, she might be because she's a woman. Let's be, let's be clear because she's great at social media and she's blonde and she does push-ups in her hotel room and she has zingers on Twitter. She knows how to work it to get a lot of the attention, but she is one of many. And I think that's important to, to, to point out. I would say that, you know, at the rally, she, she convinced those voters there, though, that she has a lot of say in Congress that she is an influential speaker. And I think part of that is because of her social media presence, but that she can turn and say things and it's going to catch attention. And she really emphasized, you know, at that rally to get those voters paying attention and screaming at the Democratic Party to make changes, that they had to hold Nancy Pelosi and other leaders right now in the House accountable. And, I, you know, the crowd roared for her. She was the first to speak. Um, after Governor Kemp speak, uh, was speaking, then the crowd kind of dwindled out. So they were the two headliners. And I do want to say, I think my answer was more in Washington. You know, I know out, she has a big platform, you know, across the nation, one of the biggest. I definitely don't want to, you know, diminish that at all. But in Washington, she's not necessarily the biggest player, even among the most far-right members. She didn't, even when you know, the Republican leader McCarthy was putting members on the select committee. She wasn't among the five he 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 suggested initially, for example. Yeah, so as we go into 2022, right, what's important about this is that there's a couple of things that come out of it, right? Number one is the fact that, which is not unimportant, particularly for somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene, is that we still have redistricting coming. That has not happened yet. All of the congressional districts in Georgia have the possibility of being redrawn. And there has long been some rumblings that, for example, that's one of the districts where the lines might change um, and that other ones might change of how that's going to affect people. And so we're, we're waiting to see what that is. But I think the secondary part is that the voters who turn out in primaries are very different than the voters who turn out in general elections. Um, your primary voters are those who vote in, they, they have made voting a habit, they have made it a duty, they are the ones who are paying attention. They can actually list who the candidates are, they know their policy positions, they're gonna turn out and they're gonna go, and they're also gonna be much more of the party faithful, which currently, particularly in a district like Marjorie Taylor Greene's is, well, showing up at the rally, like uh, Karen was just talking about, with Trump won stickers and um, suggesting right, really a kind of very different view of what we're all seeing than in other places. Now, where that sort of changes is if we look at, for example, the Senate races um, and sort of who's going to come out there. Um, Bill sent us an early poll from that had, not surprisingly, Herschel Walker polling incredibly high because let's be real, everybody in the country knows who Herschel Walker is because they watch, we pay attention to football. In Georgia, we particularly know who he is. Um, who's been out campaigning is Gary Black. And if I was him, I'd be incredibly worried because there were almost 70% of the respondents who were like, we don't really know who he is. 
Um, and that's going to be some of the issue that comes in for those statewide races where, um, again, it is definitely about turnout, but now you've broadened out who the groups are and you've got kind of competing turnout that's happening. But I think one of the things we're really going to have to watch, honestly, as we go into this, and particularly for somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene, is what happens when they redraw the districts, because that's what the state legislature will be taking up. So let me make a couple points based on that. Number one, uh, we just learned uh, late last week, and I thought this was really important, um, that the U.S. Census Bureau is going to be able to return the data that uh, is going to really allow uh, redrawing maps to begin uh, much somewhat earlier than they had said. It looks like it's going to be the end of August we're going to have that data, which means we could start a special session in Georgia mid-September instead of even later than that. So that's going to be uh, fascinating to watch. But uh, the other thing I wanted to point out is, uh, Karen, uh, there was a straw poll up there, and uh, Governor Kemp, despite the fact, apparently, and you could tell us there was some spattering of booze when he spoke, Governor Kemp won the straw poll overwhelmingly, 75% of the vote, uh, you know, uh, Vernon Jones got like uh, 8% of the vote. He's been the only person of any name who's uh, been uh, mentioned. So, you know, I, Kemp goes into the election with some people doubting whether he's a real Trumper, but he does seem to be in a better position than a lot of people suggest on the Republican side, Karen. I think so. And at the rally, those boos came predominantly from Vernon Jones people and Candace Taylor people who are supporting other candidates who are primarying him. I mean, Governor Kemp has the incumbency advantage here, right? He's the incumbent. He has made a stand against some things that were unpopular, but I think he will be tested on and, and voters will look at how he's handling COVID-19, how he's been leading through on the economy during this time. I think there are other things he'll have to face. But after that, I mean, seeing that rally, I think predominantly people are okay with him. And they're just waiting to see who the Democratic opponent's going to be now. Um, We're out of time for today's show. And I'm really sorry we are because, uh, Tia, you wrote an interesting piece that I'd hope we'll get to. We'll have you back to talk about the Raphael Warnock a race for U.S. Senate and how Republicans are strategizing and beginning already to attack him in hopes that they can uh, win that seat back. Um, so we'll talk about that. We've got plenty of time before the election of 2022 is really upon us. In the meantime, uh, Amy Steigerwald, Tia Mitchell, Karen Owen, thank you all so much for a really interesting conversation today. I was very happy to have all of you uh, with us for today. That's it for today's Political Rewind. We're back again, of course, with a brand new show tomorrow. Uh, in the meantime, I don't know about you, but I think taking care and staying safe feels as important today as it did a year ago when we were all struggling so mightily with how to protect ourselves against the virus. So please take the advice of CDC and other public health experts, wear a mask, when you're indoors, even if you are fully vaccinated. And if for some reason you're not, now's as good a time as any to get a jab in the arm and protect yourself from the Delta variant. I'm Bill Nygut. See you all tomorrow.